Welcome to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with my co-host, John Kiriakou. We're here to take you against the grain for the next couple of hours. And boy, we have a lot of people to talk to today and then a lot of other news to try and squeeze in around those conversations. We're going to break a record today. Yeah, we might. We might. It's exciting. Uh, there's so much to talk about. I forget what we have coming up. We're going to talk uh, about the results of uh, Sergei Lavrov's visit to Turkey and what could be happening there uh, with the summit of the Americas starting in uh, in L.A. or as this is my favorite thing that's come out of that summit so far, because, of course, quite a few people are missing. So it's being called some of the Americas. <laughs> which I think is very clever. Uh, We are going to talk a little bit about that more later, we hope, with a Sputnik correspondent who is there. We are going to talk about Nixon and the CIA with uh, the author of a new book on that topic, which I am very interested in. We are going to talk a little bit about uh, a little bit about why the U.S. is saying we don't know what's going on in Ukraine and how believable that is. And we are going to talk about the way the very important relationship between Russia and China is being reported in the West and whether we actually have an understanding of what that relationship is. Uh, yes. It seems like seems like, you know, with those the two countries constantly in our crosshairs, we should probably like have an honest assessment of what that relationship is and where it's going. Right. Yeah. Agreed. And we are, of course, going to talk a, a little bit about the very consequential primaries last night. You know, I have to say that I was surprised at how consequential some of these races turned out to be. Yeah. We're going to we're going to spend a lot of time talking about California just because there was some upheaval there. But there was also a a race that came out of nowhere in the state of Mississippi. Uh the the uh, there's a Republican uh congressman representing Mississippi's 3rd district. And with 92% of the votes in, it looks like he lost his race. And the the race really centered on the fact that this Republican congressman voted in favor of creating the January 6th committee. And uh, there was a pro-Trump challenger. Wow, that was enough to sink him. That was enough to sink him. That's wild. Mm Mm-hmm. There is some stuff that uh, we want to make sure we mention before we start bringing on our guests. And, uh, of course, I have to mention that there uh, was testimony this morning. It may still be going on in front of the uh, House by, uh, among others, it's it's a gun violence hearing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there was testimony by survivors and family members of victims of the shooting in Uvalde. So if you want to listen to a nine or 10 year old talk about putting her classmates blood on her in order to play dead and avoid a shooter's attention and then go get her dead teacher's cell phone and call 911 fruitlessly, as we now yes. know, you can listen to that, right? Only in America. Beautiful, right? You also can hear a mother and father talk about dropping their 10-year-old daughter off at school and never picking her up again. Or hear about a mother talking about how she ran a mile barefoot to the school, hoping that her child would be there alive, but in fact, wasn't, right? Beautiful, beautiful time to reflect on this country and what it is and what it means to to be an American. And the thing is, you know, I was listening to this. It was pretty upsetting. Uh, and And I just hope... That all of these parents who have taken the time to testify before, you know, this this gathering of ghouls that is our Congress right now, that that it will amount to something. Right. Because what a monstrous insult 
Well, I'm sure that you saw this graphic that was on all the different uh, news channels yesterday about what's on the table and what's off the table in discussions between the two parties on gun control legislation. Yeah. What is still on the table is very, very weak. There's almost nothing. For example, what's not on the table is raising the uh, the age from 18 to 21 to buy uh, an assault rifle. They won't even discuss it. Yeah. Republicans are not willing to even discuss it. Yeah. But they will discuss, not that they'll necessarily vote yes, but they'll discuss um, a red flag law that would deny um, the ability to purchase a gun by a mentally ill person. Okay. I mean, I guess good. It's just, I mean, the you know, it, it is the definition of adding insult to injury. It really right? is. Right? To invite these people to participate in this event. Uh, I don't want to say knowing nothing will happen, right? Because I don't think that it is. I, I don't think we should just be knee-jerk pessimistic about this kind of stuff. Right. Uh, but, you know, it, it, this so often just seems to be sort of an orgy of, of uh, titillation and emotion, right? And I understand yes. that there's also value in sharing these stories and people want their their dead loved ones to sort of live on in memories. But to go through all of this for nothing uh, is just such an insult to to these people. It's just awful. And there's going to be a fight within the Republican Party about this, too. Uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene gave a a two-hour-long diatribe on a podcast last night condemning Lindsey Graham. Because earlier in the evening, Lindsey Graham said that he would be willing to discuss these issues with Democrats and that he believed the Democrats and the Republicans uh, can actually come to some sort of an agreement. So um, she gave out his office phone number and asked her millions of followers to bombard his office with phone calls to protest his support for the radical communist Joe Biden agenda. uh, It's just so stupid. Radical communist. I mean, the words have definitions, people. Like, there are communists in the world. You can talk to them, and they can tell you what they believe in and what they advocate for. She needs a poli-sci 101 freshman year class. It doesn't care. It's not not knowing. It's just because other people will believe it. It's so stupid. Um, I also, because we won't have a chance to mention it later in the report, I'm hoping we can talk about this a little bit more tomorrow, but the Gray Zone has put out a new piece detailing what it says are plans by British journalist Paul Mason, who had a long career with the BBC, to destroy what he deems the pro-Putin left mm-hmm. through cooperation with who else but a company that bills itself as a digital agency that counters disinformation, but which is headed by a man with a long involvement in Syria doing narrative-shaping work funded by the UK Foreign Office. Interesting. You know, the, they're just as bad as we are. Sorry. Sorry to interrupt are, you. You know, well, the Gray Zone has uh, it reports that it has a series of emails between Mason, uh, the head of this company and others on their efforts to get the UK government involved in throttling and deplatforming the site and a bonkers map of what a Mason apparently calls the left pro-Putin infosphere, which includes, you know, includes people who who we know, in, includes some voices who we speak to on this show, but also includes lots of others. Jeremy Corbyn, right. Diane Abbott, noted Putin lovers there in the, in the British government. And, and so looking at the map, you see what is obviously the larger picture, which is to take down any elements of the left that are critical of U.S. and U.K. imperial wars, right? 
It has right. nothing to do with connections to, to Vladimir Putin or connections to China. It is it is wild. This is all politics. Period. And it's all being undertaken by a man who has called himself a journalist, Mm -hmm. who is now desperate Mm -hmm. to silence the few voices that have been saying, hey, do you think we're being told the truth about this war? Or, hey, you know, these dots that you've presented don't connect. Or, you know, as the gray zone has done in Syria for a long time. Hey, if you look at who we are supporting in this war, it seems to contradict our stated objectives. I think those are important journalistic questions. The other thing that this raises to me, and I, I, I did a little bit of a look at this. Um, you know, I think the gray zone does really important, valuable work. I think they should get attention, right? And they get some. And founder Max Blumenthal has written several books. They get some attention, rightly so. So, you know, it, the gray zone are not a bunch of unknowns, no, right? That's right. But the gray zone also has a fraction of the social media presence of democracy now, which is hardly a media heavy hitter, right? This is, again, not to disparage their work or to say it doesn't matter. uh, But I think in reality, the fact that they draw so much attention from people who want to silence them is probably the biggest boost to their credibility. Absolutely. Millions of people are not tuning into the gray zone every day, right? If you think they're just spouting nonsense, like Joe Rogan gets accused of doing day in and day out, his massive audience. Gigantic. You could look at their numbers and say, uh, we, I don't know if we really have to worry about this. Yes. But if you are reporting something that is true, that is very uncomfortable or sensitive, or that you really don't want people to know, that would seem to me to maybe be an occasion to bring out the firepower. Agreed. Right? And so, you know, it is the very current limitations of this, you know, the, the size of this audience. And uh, when you contrast that with the sort of uh, forces that are continually marshaled against them, you go, well, why even bother? Why even bother unless there's like actually something here? Yes. And I think that is a sort of important context for for looking at this story. That's why when NewsGuard said they were going to put this red tag on uh, on the Gray Zone website uh, in Google, saying that it was an unreliable source mm-hmm. of, of news, uh, Max Blumenthal said that uh, he wore that as a badge of honor. Yeah, He was absolutely. happy to welcome their stupid... Red flag. Yep. yep. Red tag. Uh, the other thing that's going on, as I mentioned, is uh, the the Summit of the Americas and Secretary of State Antony Blinken has faced a little bit of heat already yesterday at the Media Summit of the Americas, notably from journalists Abby Martin of Empire Files and Eugene Perrier of Breakthrough News, who were asking, again, like, hey, if you are excluding... Cuba, Nicaragua, Venezuela for not being democratic. And of course, as we saw, the president of Mexico bowed out uh, because he said this, you know, this, this should be all or nothing. Um, why have you invited Ariel Henry of Haiti? That's right. Who is ruling with no mandate in violation of the Haitian Constitution, in addition to being implicated in serious crimes against journalists? And Blinken, you know, had a, had a sort of non-answer. Uh, Abby Martin asked about the murder of Shireen Abu Akla and how you can be sitting here advocating for a free press when you are basically ignoring what seems pretty clearly to have been uh, at the very, very least uh, a terrible mistake mm-hmm, by the Israeli mm-hmm. military. And I think, you know, CNN has come to the conclusion that that's not what it was. Mm-hmm. Uh, Blinken 
Blinken basically said there's there's been no credible independent investigation into her death, which has got to not feel great <laughs> for CNN, which actually went, you know, stuck its neck out on this one. Um, but, you know, continued to say, oh, no, we're happy to happy to follow the facts whenever there's an investigation as though one will just materialize out of out of thin air, you know, unbelievable. Yeah. Uh, so we are going to get we're going to check in with someone at that summit uh, later in the show to talk about what has gone down there. In the meantime, we're going to take a break here and get ready for our very full show coming up here on Political Misfits. We're live in D.C. We're on Radio Sputnik and we'll be right back. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte here with John Kiriakou, getting in now to some recent reporting on what we'll call intelligence gaps mm-hmm. in the United States with regard to our support for the war in Ukraine. Earlier this week, we talked about the Department of Homeland Security registering some concern that it wasn't able to track the movements of known white supremacists traveling to Ukraine to fight, nor did it have any idea what they were learning, who they were networking with, and where they intend on taking these new skills if and when they return home. Today, we have uh, some more along this theme. And discussing this with us is going to be Cynthia Chung. She's president and co-founder of the Rising Tide Foundation, and she's writer for the Strategic Culture Foundation. Cynthia, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So here is a New York Times headline from today on uh, what we are supposed to believe are intelligence gaps having to do with Ukraine's war strategy. Uh, We're told... U.S. lacks a clear picture of Ukraine's war strategy. Intelligence agencies know far more about Russia's military, even as the U.S. ships billions of dollars in weapons to Ukrainians. And so the story goes on to say that U.S. intelligence agencies have far less information than they would like about Ukraine's operations and, in fact, have a far better picture of Russia's military and what its plans are. Uh, This is, of course, all according to anonymous sources uh, that tell the Times the Ukrainian government is just not giving us very many classified briefings. And uh, the Biden administration might not be able to figure out how to target aid in the future. And I want to stop here um, before we go into more detail and just ask uh, just right up front, should we really believe this? Right. The story says, hey, look, uh, one reason for this is that our intelligence agencies pay more attention to adversaries and allies, to which I would say, "Okay, we were bugging Angela Merkel's phone for years. Right. And what is Germany, if not, you know, especially at the time, our greatest ally? Uh, We're talking about a country the United States has been deeply involved in for years in Ukraine, especially since 2014. And so I think we have to ask. If any of this ignorance is real, it has to be deliberate, right? It's going to be very convenient to not know that billions of dollars of weapons are maybe going to fascist elements of the Ukrainian fighting forces, right? And so do you think we should believe for a second that the U.S. doesn't know what's going on in a country where our CIA has been training troops for years and where there are credible reports that U.S. special forces are helping gather and analyze intelligence? Mm -hmm. Um, well, I mean, I think the it should be quite obvious uh, for most people that 
that's uh, absolutely uh, not the case, that we should be believing them. And actually, as you were talking about that, it reminded me of how the U.S. was also working with Reinhard Gellin of uh, West Germany after World War II uh, was won. And, uh, you know, there was supposed to be that the Nazis lost, but then they uh, hired this uh, former Nazi to take care of the the security apparatus of West Germany. Mm-hmm. And uh, when the 1998 Nazi, Nazi war crimes uh, records were declassified, it was uh, revealed that the U.S. never really knew what Gellin was up to and uh, that there was a lot of um, his activity with Operation Gladio that was associated with terrorist activity, often blamed on uh, communists, Mm. that was involved in not just Eastern Europe but the Middle East. Um, But a more recent example is the 2012 Benghazi attack um, that occurred in Libya where Libya's war chest was used for ISIS and other terrorists. Um, Again, you could say that that was a very predictable outcome Mm -hmm. from the uh, American intervention. And then you have NBC News actually saying the new strategy um, the U.S. is using in the info war, which uh, basically is lying. So they're reporting certain things that the Russians are doing or planning on doing, mm-hmm. which in fact have not been validated, have not been confirmed. But their theory, mm-hmm. according to this piece, is if you put it out there, that will prevent the Russians from doing those those very things. So it's becoming very wacky. Mm-hmm. The other thing is that Ukraine has been in a civil war for the past eight years. So when we're talking about the Ukrainian cause, I think that's already a very dishonest thing to say, because you have a lot of Ukrainians who have been um, basically terrorized uh, by the Azov Battalion uh, very clearly. But, you know, the Azov Battalion is associated with the Ukrainian military. The Ukrainian military itself is not uh, innocent Mm -hmm. in uh, war crimes, which the Washington Post even had to acknowledge Mm -hmm. that the Ukrainian military was putting its its weapons inside uh, towns. They were uh, hiding out in hospitals and daycare areas in in town so that they're legitimate targets of war. But if they're targeted, there will be civilian losses. Mm. Um, And, you know, it's done purposefully to then blame Russia for these civilian losses. Mm. So Washington Post brings this up. But, you know, it's 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 almost as if like these things are acceptable. Canada as well, you know, uh, it's not just the U.S. Canada has also been training neo-Nazis since uh, 2014. And uh, they were claiming that they had no knowledge. It wasn't their responsibility for even knowing who they were training in Ukraine. It's the the responsibility of the Ukrainian government, but from their knowledge that they weren't training any Mm neo-Nazis. However, um, the actual neo-Nazis they were training then posted on their social media accounts. Yes. um, These like training uh, sessions with NATO countries, including Canada, with their Azov, you know, badges on their uniforms. They Mm -hmm. showed up in uniform. So... You know, yeah. Well, let me ask. I mean, I, I think I agree. I think it is just really silly to pretend that the U.S. has all of this, you know, real time information about what's going on in Russia. But we just don't know what's going on in Ukraine because they won't tell us. And so then I wonder why. Right. Why is this story getting the front page treatment in The New York Times? Right. What is this in service of? And I'm going to guess I, I think that. People are starting to realize that they are not getting a lot of information about some parts of this war, in particular about Ukrainian losses and in particular just about what their goals are. And I think also the U.S. is probably trying to distance itself from what happens next. And I I wonder what you think, why we should have this sort of pretense that we don't know what's going on. Um, 
I think that it's uh, this proxy war is is being fought not for just the Ukrainian cause, as they're they're saying. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I want to mention really quickly that the National Endowment for Democracy, the rogue CIA offshoot, which specializes in color revolutions. Jeremy Kuzmarov for the Covert Action magazine made a point that they uh, deleted their records of funding uh, projects in Ukraine, mm-hmm. which uh, he made the point was uh, uh, necessary in order to validate Biden administration's big lie um, where the Russian invasion into Ukraine was unprovoked. But I think the bigger picture in this, um, besides the fact that it's it's obviously going to be in support of further global terrorism, as uh, Scott Ritter has also made the point, is that um, Michael Hudson has has uh, brought forward that the U.S.-NATO proxy war in Ukraine is leading to something larger involving world famine and a foreign exchange crisis for food and oil deficit countries, um, and that this is uh, the real attack is on China's Belt and Road Initiative. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the things we're seeing coming out of this is that we're in an energy crisis now. We're in a food shortage situation, which was, again, very predictable. Mm -hmm. It's an artificial scarcity that has been caused. And so this is like one way for them to sabotage uh, the growing Eastern um, alliance of Russia and China. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think it's very silly because they're going to put more pressure on uh, the global south but the global south is increasingly having the option to work with Russia and China in an alternate uh, economic system that uh, Sergei Glazyev is is leading. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Uh, let's talk a little bit about this relationship between Russia and China. Uh, I have seen a lot of recent reporting that really wants to convey the message that, that Russia is the junior partner here and that eventually being subordinate to China will rile up Vladimir Putin and the, the, the relationship is doomed in the medium term. And I mean, it, it clearly China's economy is much larger than Russia's. China's doing more high tech exporting. China is not sanctioned to the gills right now. Uh, so, you know, it seems clear China, China on the whole is a more powerful country on the world stage. Uh, but I don't think this means the relationship is necessarily doomed. And I wanted to just ask, you know, th- this is a very consequential relationship. And I wonder if you think I wonder what you think of how it is being portrayed in Western media and and what we should understand about this relationship. Well, I think that it's portrayed so negatively in Western media because they they don't like it and they don't want to support it. I mean, the Council of Foreign Relations has said that the China's Belt and Road Initiative is one of their top security concerns. And um, in the case of Russia, Russia has shown um, that because it is such a heavy resource-based country, that um, the new game uh, that's going to be, or the new economic uh, transition that we're entering uh, with Sergei Glazyev, is that countries with um, now that now that are heavy resource-based can form uh, their own currency outside of the IMF World Bank sphere so that you can now become, you know, wealthy off of your resources and you can choose to use that money for actual investment into your nation's infrastructure, Mm. which was being prevented before through the IMF World Bank. Mm. Unfortunately, you know, I think the biggest problem with Russia right now is that they're their central bank there uh, is 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 problematic, as Sergey Glazyev said. They're still beholden to the IMF uh, conditionalities, but I think that you know the Eurasian Economic Union uh, is really showing itself as uh, really integral in in this whole Shanghai cooperation, ASEAN, uh, BRICS, mm-hmm. uh, Belt and Road process. Mm-hmm. 
Cynthia Chung, I really appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us. Do you want to tell our listeners before you go where they can find more of your work? Uh, sure. Uh, Strategic Culture Foundation, as always, and uh, my Substack page, too. You can just do CynthiaChungSubstack.com. All right. Thanks so much for speaking with us today. Thank you. We're going to take a quick break here on Political Misfits and come right back. to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov and Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan today agreed to create a safe maritime corridor to ship Ukrainian grain from the Black Sea to confront an escalating global food crisis. The Turkish Foreign Minister added that the agreement should be accompanied by a Western decision to lift sanctions against Russia. Ukraine is one of the world's largest exporters of wheat, corn, and sunflower oil, but the war has halted much of the country's exports. Lavrov said that all that is now required is for Ukraine to either demine its ports or to create a safe corridor out of them. We're joined by Elijah Manier. He's a veteran war journalist. He joined us yesterday. He has more than 35 years of experience in world hotspots like Iran, Lebanon, Syria, Libya, Sudan, and Yugoslavia. Welcome back, Elijah. Hello, and thank you for having me. Thank you so much for doing this again. Uh, And I regret that we have such a short period of time, but the issue is so important, we wanted to get your take on it. Uh, Yesterday, we talked about what the two most important issues were that the two sides would discuss in these talks in Ankara. Uh, That was the war between Russia and Ukraine and the prospects for a Turkish buffer zone in Syria. Today, Foreign Minister Lavrov spoke at length about the agreement to allow Ukraine to export wheat, corn, and sunflower oil. The Turkish Foreign Minister called for lifting Western sanctions, but we didn't hear a single word about Syria. Why do you think that is? Because both Russia and Turkey spoke about the points in common, what they can agree upon, and not the point where they disagree upon. And Syria is not a country where both Russia and Turkey agree, because Russia uh, holds on to the uh, Syrian sovereignty, while Turkey wants a cut of Syria, wants the northwest and wants 30 kilometers deep along the borders between Turkey and Syria. And this is what Russia cannot agree. So in diplomacy, because there is a major issue today that is Uh, persistent, and it's a priority, is Ukraine and is the food security in the world, Russia and Turkey are talking about how to facilitate the uh, export of Ukrainian grain that is one of the largest, the fifth actually. So the largest is Russia uh, that is in the first place. And I don't think the West wants to uh, allow Russia and Turkey to succeed in these talks because Ukraine yesterday evening immediately responded by saying, we are not going to agree on the deal that doesn't suit us. Mm -hmm. It means that a deal that doesn't suit the Americans, where the Russians and the Turks can manage to uh, agree on something that the whole world is waiting for to soften the pressure of the US and EU sanctions 
and the consequences of these sanctions on the world. And I don't think the Americans will allow the Turkey and Russia to have to enjoy this victory. So not talking about Syria is an issue because it's a it's an issue of differences. Mm-hmm. Can you see a scenario where the Turks move into Syria, even just for a short period of time, without the acquiescence of the Russians and the Americans? Could they do that, just claiming it as a national security necessity? I don't think so. It's extremely unlikely because the Russians and the Americans are operating in the area where Turkey is expressing its wishful thinking of going into Syria. And it is not a Turkish territory. It's a Syrian territory. So I don't think Turkey will move in without the agreement of Russia and America. And that is not going to happen. We've talked about the possibility of President Biden traveling to Saudi Arabia soon, and literally nobody is optimistic that there will be any kind of major improvement in relations between the two countries. Here's what the White House spokeswoman had to say today. Quote, the White House declines to say if President Biden still seeks to make Saudi Arabia a pariah state as he well, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, no, that's right. That's the quote. Oh, my God. It was so crazy. As I was reading it, I thought I was making a mistake. Okay, I'm going to start again. The White House declines to say if President Biden still seeks to make Saudi Arabia a pariah state, as he once vowed. But as president, he considers Saudi Arabia an important partner on a host of regional and global strategies. The White House, uh, unquote, the White House was asked how they reconcile not inviting Cuba, Nicaragua, and Venezuela to the summit of the Americas uh, because, quote, we don't believe dictators should be invited, unquote, while then simultaneously planning a trip for the president to go to Saudi Arabia, which he had vowed to make a pariah. So the White House spokeswoman's response was this, quote, the president is focused on getting things done for the American people. If he determines that it's in the interest of the United States to engage with a foreign leader and that such an engagement can deliver results, then he'll do so, unquote. So my question to you then is, are you at all optimistic about relations between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia? In the shortest term, uh, at least if you believe the American media, this is about oil production and gas prices. Over the longer term, uh, you know, we've got damaged relations. Uh, we, we've got the Khashoggi uh, murder. Uh, we have some very harsh things that were said by both sides. Is this repairable in the short term? It's a very good question. But before I answer, I would like to comment on what uh, I call hypocrisy, double standard, and quite amusing how the American administration consider a country as a pariah and the next day visiting it and it is very well accepted and they open their arms and welcoming the country because it's an oil rich country and because the Americans have made a mistake in shooting themselves in the foot and um, asking the Europeans to do exactly the same by uh, imposing sanctions on Russia when they are not, they were not prepared for. So what they are doing is Yes, the Americans are very pragmatic in who uh, and why they should establish relationship with. So they don't invent, uh, invite Cuba, Venezuela, and Nicaragua because their summit is about democracy. While they say, oh, well, suddenly Saudi Arabia has turned from one day to another as a democratic state, 
well, that is also valid for the Emirates and Bahrain and yes. all the other countries that um, have no elections and no parliament. And it is a selective because that is suitable for the Americans. What the Americans want from the Saudi is to increase the production of oil. Now, the Saudis have agreed to raise it to 650,000 barrels. They can't do that, and they can raise it to 350. But even if they go to 650, it's not going to meet the first of the global market. Yes. So the Americans are trying to soften the consequences of the sanction they have imposed on themselves and say, well, we can have an, an alternative. This is why Biden is running to Saudi Arabia and will end up talking to uh, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. He will be present in the same room. And this is where the uh, relationship will start again uh, between the two men, because not between the two countries, because the relationship between the two countries never stopped. So what we are seeing is a concession from Biden, a break to his promise before the election, and now he embraced um, Mohammed bin Salman again, who is responsible for killing Khashoggi and the other atrocity that he done, particularly in Yemen. Yes. So that, yeah. that is according to the U.S. interest. And yes, the relationship will return as before and even better. Oh, very interesting. Thank you for those insights. That was the voice of Elijah Magnier. He's a veteran war journalist with more than 35 years experience in some of the world's real hotspots, including Iran, Lebanon, Syria, Libya, Sudan, and Yugoslavia. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We'll take another short break and come right back for some politics. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. It's time again for Politics Wednesday, where we update you on all the latest election news. Yesterday saw primary elections in California, South Dakota, Iowa, Mississippi, Montana, New Jersey, and New Mexico. Governor Kristi Noem and Senator John Thune of South Dakota easily won renomination, as did Senator Chuck Grassley of Iowa. If Grassley wins re-election, and he likely will, he will be 95 years old at the end of his term. He's running for his eighth consecutive Senate term. But he will have the greatest Twitter account in the entire U.S. Congress. <laughs> Billionaire. Uh, Rick Caruso and Representative Karen Bass, both of whom we discussed yesterday on the show, will both advance to the general election. Neither one of them got 50 percent. San Francisco District Attorney Chesa Bodine was recalled. And even The New York Times today is calling him former District Attorney Chesa Bodine. Uh, and Los Angeles County Sheriff Alex Villanueva performed poorly enough much to everybody's surprise, that he will advance to the general election with another Democratic opponent. So very interesting there. And there looks to be an upset in the making in Mississippi. We'll talk about that in a second. We're joined here in the studio by Ray Valencia. She is a Sputnik News analyst and the producer of this show. Welcome Hello. back. Hello. So there's no point really in talking about 
South Dakota, Iowa, yeah, New Mexico. Christine Nome. I mean, she's Nothing so happened. popular. And, yeah, yeah, everybody she's, loves she's her. In. She's loved. She got 90-something percent. Thune got 92 percent. Uh, Grassley in Iowa got, you know, 89 percent. There's everybody expected those those results, but there have been a couple of really crazy ones. I want to talk about Mississippi real quickly. So I'm looking at the New York Times, um, the latest update. This is Mississippi's third congressional district. Uh, the incumbent is Michael Guest, Congressman Michael Guest, a Republican, kind of one of your sort of typical down the line conservative Republicans. He uh, he's one of these um, constituent service guys. So you don't see him on the news uh, yelling about big issues and, you know, making outrageous tweets. Uh, but he did vote in favor of creating the January 6th committee. He was one of a handful of Republicans that voted yes. And immediately a guy named Michael Cassidy jumped into this race. Cassidy is a down the line Trump supporter, wears the MAGA hat and, you know, the whole nine yards. And said that Michael Guest was not conservative enough for Mississippi. Well, to everybody's surprise, and they just updated these numbers less than 60 seconds ago, um, Cassidy, the challenger, is defeating the incumbent guest 47.7 to 46.8. There is a difference of 401 votes between them. Now, here's how important it is to get out and vote. Every congressional district has roughly 800,000 people in it, right? In this entire primary, uh, three candidates, there were 45,794 votes. That's it. You can win a congressional nomination with 21,000 votes. It's wild. And, you know, you and I had this conversation in the newsroom a few weeks ago about if you're a third party and you want to win somewhere, yeah. and you want to build a third party, go to a place where there's, you know, a low population where you could drive the vote and turn out like Wyoming or some small congressional district. I'm glad you brought that up because there was an important article yesterday in Politico talking about the Libertarian Party and saying that the Libertarian Party, out of all the small parties that we have, that was the party that had the chance to become a third party. And I'll give you some background, too. Um, I consider myself to be a libertarian leftist, right? There is such a thing called the libertarian left. I believe that Ronald Reagan was right when he said that government is the problem. It's not the solution to the problem. But at the same time, I believe in robust, a robust social safety net, right? We have to help the people who have less than we do. I think this is a big struggle in California right now. We're seeing this battle. But the thing is, is the Republican part of, sorry, the Libertarian Party is self-destructing. And the reason it's self-destructing is because it's being taken over by MAGA purists. People who, who are so wildly pro-Trump that the Republican Party is not conservative enough for them. And so there's a very distinct split now in the libertarians between these ultra right wing MAGA people and what Politico is calling the Gary Johnson faction. Now, Gary Johnson was the two term Republican governor of New Mexico. He uh, switched to the Libertarian Party. He was the Libertarian Party's presidential nominee in 2012 and 2016 conservative on uh, budgetary issues, liberal on social issues, smokes a lot of weed. 
I had to tell him one time, I said, Governor, first of all, I was still on probation at the time. And every time you wanted to meet, we're in this cloud of weed. And I was like, oh, Governor, no. I get drug tested. I can't meet in here. And I said to him, it's the only time I offered him unsolicited advice. I said, we can't be the party of free weed for everybody. We got to stand for yeah. something else, you know? I mean, free weed is great, but we got to stand for, you know. Absolutely. Some people want other things. Man cannot live on weed alone. Exactly. That's true. We need food and clean water exactly. and clean air and all that other stuff. Yeah. Anyway, with that as an aside, mm -hmm. he told me that the, that the Libertarian Party's biggest problem was that it did not have a benefactor. Right. There was one billionaire in California. He didn't tell me his name, but he called him the canned tomato king of America. Right. He owns all the farms that make all the canned tomatoes. And he had given the libertarians a couple of hundred thousand bucks. We bought a big motor home and we tooled all around the Western United States in it. But unlike the Democrats and the Republicans, there's no mechanism by which they can just raise millions and millions of dollars. Yeah, you need a big benefactor, like you're saying. You have to. You need to. somebody yeah, that's going to just put up the money and say, well, yeah, look at these races. A lot of, we got uh, Oz in Pennsylvania, you know, the self-funded, maybe a self-funded billionaire that has those kind of politics. And, Wouldn't and be a viable what you candidate. end up with is mm -hmm. I get these screaming hair on fire emails from the Libertarian Party saying, oh, my God. John Smith just got elected to the water board of Anchorage, Alaska. It's like, okay, I don't care. I don't care. Write to me when somebody gets elected to Congress. Yeah. But there's just no way that that's going to happen. And, and it's, it's because there's no real party structure and no mechanism to fund a party. Yeah, and they probably had more of a chance with the Tea Party because they were kind of bringing people together. It wasn't dividing folks. There were a lot of libertarians in the Tea Party. Yes. You know, and they were active politically and applying, you know, um, running on small races. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. So, you know, there, there, we keep saying every, every three, four years, ooh, there's a chance that a viable third party could emerge. But I don't think it's no viable chance. to run for president as no, a third party you candidate. Start at the bottom. I always feel like people that do that, they're just diluting the vote and they're just hurting. I mean, I'm up against, I don't look at my vote as like, uh, I don't know, an emotional thing. I'm more of a strategist, you know. I don't really, I'm not game for all the things that the Democrats are doing right now. But when I look at what the Republican ticket is doing, yeah. it's worse. So as long as I'm in a swing state or a swing congressional district, you got to kind of go out there and, yeah, so you know, many people, I, so many people say that. So many people say that. And that's why, that's one of the reasons why we don't have a viable third party. You know, I went to the libertarian Christmas party and of course being libertarians, it was held at the end of January because they couldn't get their act together in time for Christmas. Okay. <laughs> they were all smoking weed. Yeah. I guess. Yeah. So I go to this Christmas party and we're all wearing name tags. Hello. My name is those name tags you get at office yeah, yeah. depot. So um, I'm walking around and this guy's looking at my name tag and he goes, Oh, Hey, John, John Kiriakou, he said, I'm, I forget his name. I'm the head of the Libertarian Party for the state of Virginia. I wanted to ask you, would you be interested in running for governor of Virginia? And I said, absolutely not. And he goes, really? And I go, I said, no, absolutely not. He said, why not? I'm surprised. And I said, because I'm going to end up being completely out of pocket 
You guys are going to walk away from me as soon as I announce my candidacy. I'm going to get 2% and I'm going to make a fool of myself. And it's all this energy. You could be writing another book or doing something, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, but I, I wanted to talk a little bit about, you know, the gun violence issue, because this is an issue that's going to be on the ballot, but how it's affecting Democrats and Republicans is really different, right? Yes. So, you know, the question is, the polls are indicating, it's widely reported that the polls are indicating that most Americans are for some kind of reform as it, re, as it relates to gun legislation. Yet, yes. When you go to the ballot box, there is a disconnect. Voters just aren't voting. It's not reflecting what we're seeing in the polls. And so the question is, you know, now with the hearing on the Hill and the optics of this fourth grader explaining yeah. how she stayed alive during the massacre, I just can't imagine, you know, at some point there's a tipping point and something gets done. Um, we have a race in California, right? A lot of progressives got ousted. We got um, the gentleman in the district attorney. Chesa Bodine. Yes, right? Uh, yeah, that, running, that's a blow to that's progressives. That's a blow. I mean, he's only been in office for, what, two years? Right, and really trying to do something about criminal justice reform. But mm -hmm. then you're in the wake of a rising, of an environment of rising crime, and then the law and order is coming in, right, with the Republicans. So yeah. there's just going to be this real tension between the law and order crowd. Well, and, the, and the LA Times said this morning that, all eyes were on Chesa Bodine because Los Angeles is next. Yes. And, and that's when there's what's a recall in Los Pass. Angeles, yeah. then it's going to happen in New York City. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Crazy. So I think the law and order campaign for the Republicans is going to be an interesting thing. And then how about Eric Greitens in, uh, he's running and I don't know if you've seen his ads, but he's like sitting on heavy military artillery. Well, the latest firing polls. stuff everywhere. I mean, who did we have? We had somebody on the show who was a Republican and I asked about Eric Greitens and he said that if Eric Greitens wins the nomination, the Democrats are going to win that Senate seat. And I said, there's no way the Republicans are that stupid that they're going to allow Eric Greitens to actually get away with that seat. And if you look at the latest polls, he's winning. Yes. I looked last night. <laughs> That's why I brought it up today. It's just wild. And I mean, this I, is a guy who tied his hairdresser to the chair and allegedly raped her and then took pictures of her and said he would release the pictures of her nude and tied to the chair if she told anybody and had to resign in disgrace because he was the governor at the time that he did this, resigned in disgrace. And now he's going to win the Senate nomination. His wife left him. Oh, yeah. You should see the ads, though. The ads are wild. I mean, it's him sitting on a tank, you know, blowing stuff up. A tank. Yeah, or some kind of military grade thing. Yeah. Hey, and I mentioned to you offline, I wanted to tell our, our listeners, uh, there's, a, there's a new commercial out by Herschel Walker. <laughs> And they had to put subtitles now, in it. Now, wait. Now, these are, these are subtitles, not like closed caption because you're hearing impaired. I mean, they literally had to put. Yeah, like, because what he's you saying. can't understand what the man is saying. I proudly told my colleagues here that I was that Herschel Walker blocked me on Twitter the other day because I said he's been hit in the head too many times. He, he has been hit in the head too many times. And. You know, head injuries and traumatic brain injuries are, are real things. It's a real thing for it's football players. It's a real players. thing. It's very bad. It's very serious. But this guy has no business running for the Senate. No business. It's a sad commentary in, in American politics right there.
Let's get back to California for a second. Um, you know, there were a couple of real surprises in California, Chesa Bodine being one. And if you look at the numbers in that race, he, they, they just unceremoniously threw him out. And 60 this, to 40. Yeah, and this is on the heels of what happened in San Francisco with the school board, right? The school board, same thing. There's, there's a revolt taking place in San Francisco right now. We don't know yet if it's serious enough in Los Angeles or Los Angeles County to, to uh, play out there as well. But Sheriff uh, Villanueva uh, yeah. is now uh, drawn into a, well, we would call it a runoff. It's actually the general election, even though he's facing another Democrat. This is the guy we were talking about yesterday who ran as a Bernie Sanders Democrat and then immediately became a Trumper as soon as he actually got elected. And... Um, has told everybody that if uh, if they don't like it, then tough luck for them. And so now he's got he's got a race he's going to have to face. Do you think that the fact that law and order issues are are preeminent in campaigns across the country now might be enough to save him? Or I, has he offended enough Angelinos that uh, that maybe he loses this race? Well, the voting class of people are property owners in California. And they don't want dirty streets. So anybody that's or crime. So I think people that are running on law and order have a really strong campaign. And you look at uh, politicians like Rudy Giuliani, who was so popular in New York because people credited him with cleaning yeah. up the streets in Manhattan. Yeah. So if somebody's running on like, I can clean up the streets of L.A. or San right. Francisco. They're probably going to win because you have the voting class. Poor people don't vote. I mean, Bernie Sanders has said this. I mean, all the people that yes. are the homeless, the people that are suffering from the social economic problems that are that are, you know, part of the problem with the violent crime in the cities, the economy, we're heading into a recession. It's uh, it's going to be a lot of tension in California, but it's going to take um, overcoming the voting class and yes. the law and order. I think campaign. you're I think you're right. You know, I, I'll admit to you also, I, I remember going up to New York. We've had Judge Tom Fitzpatrick on the show a couple of times. Tom's my closest friend from college. And so I went up to New York to see him one time and I, I took the train up to Penn Station and then we walked back to his place and we cut through Grand Central Station on the way to his place. And I said, my God, Tom, it's it's so clean. I can't like it was shocking to me how everything had been cleaned up. And he said, as much as I hate to say it. Rudy Giuliani did this. Yeah. And that's the thing. Like, I don't think people liked Rudy Giuliani for a lot of stuff, but they did like him for cleaning up Times Square. It made it look like Disneyland. Yeah, he there. did. You know? Not that that's necessarily a good thing, but it was no, better than, you know, going to Times Square and getting stabbed and approached by eight yeah. prostitutes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, another another case, another uh, election, important one that we've been talking about is this mayoral race in Los Angeles. Uh, neither Rick Caruso nor Karen Bass got 50%. Um, Karen Bass got 38%. And she's celebrating that today because it, it takes her to election day. Uh, but 38% for an 11 term member of Congress? Yeah. And yeah, Rick yeah, Caruso yeah. putting in all that money and he was a Republican and then he was an independent I don't and know. now a Democrat. And I've witnessed this in California politics, too, where people recreate themselves. I mean, I've known Republicans that were 
you know, really in love with Alec and, and changing the state legislator and then changing the independent and then Democrat. It's like if you have enough money to run a campaign, you can completely reinvent yourself in California. You can. And there's a lot of independence in California. You know, Brian uh, Wright was talking about this. Yes. And there's a, a very strong independent strain, even among yes. Democrats. Especially and, in places like Orange County mm-hmm. that we were talking about yesterday. Oh, there are some really deep red pockets of Orange County. Mm-hmm. And we saw this with Daryl Issa. Daryl Issa was in a northern county congressional mm-hmm. district in San Diego. He migrated to... He retired. He wasn't yeah. going to run for re-election. Right. Migrated just a, you know, neighboring district that's more red, mm-hmm. ran again, and he's back. Yep. He's back. And he was he was important. He was, I think, chairman of the uh, Homeland Security Committee. He was the uh, uh, chairman of the Government Oversight that's Committee. That's right. Government and Oversight. That's what it was. we had a lot of hearings on Benghazi, if you remember. Right. Yeah. Right, 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 And I right. imagine that when the Rep- if the Republicans take over the House, as we anticipate, that we're going to see a lot of hearings similar to that. Yeah. Yeah. It's the nature of our government. It's, yeah, whoever's turn it is. In in our last four or five minutes, I have to ask you about this race in Texas that we talked about a couple of weeks ago between Henry uh, Cuellar Cuellar and um, Cisneros. Her first name escapes me right now. Jessica. Jessica Cisneros. Uh, They're separated by 187 votes, and the race hasn't been called yet, right? No, she asked for a recount. She asked for a recount. So what's happening down there? Well, I guess they're going to go for the recount, and it's have they gone to court like they did in Pennsylvania? I don't know. (laughs) I'm sorry, I didn't look that one up. No, no, uh, that's okay. Yeah, I was just curious. Uh, The New York Times has an article um, saying that they are going to recount that the uh, the race hasn't been called. Cuellar had been up by um, 281 votes. Now he's up by what did I say? 187 as of Monday. 187. So, you know, these races are so are so close that you really don't know how they can end up in a in a recount. There was there's kind of a famous race uh, from 1974. Um, I'm going to I'm going to look up the exact numbers right now. There we go. Yeah. United States Senate election 1974 in uh, New Hampshire. This was John Durkin against Lewis Wyman. So they had the election, November the 5th, 1974, and it ended in a tie. If you can imagine, 110,926 to 110,926. It ended in a tie. And so what do you do? You have a recount and the recount ended in a tie. Now talk about a situation where every I've vote counts. I've never heard of that happening. That's wild. Yeah, every <laughs> so vote counts. So they decided yeah. to have a redo. But the problem for the Republicans was Richard Nixon had just resigned. There's this huge backlash against Republicans because of Watergate. And then Durkin ended up winning. He lost in 1980 in the Reagan landslide. But boy, talk about every vote counting. It's just incredible. Incredible to me. That's why voting registration drives are so important. Yeah, that's right. And uh, they're they're ramping up again in Georgia, I'm hearing, too. They're they're back on registration drives and getting very busy for that's a full campaign season. Yeah. 
It really is. Well, next week is the twenty. Is the uh, sorry the fourteenth, and we have races in Maine, Nevada, North Dakota, South Carolina. Those so are the four we're going to be watching. Probably Nevada is going to be really the one to watch there. You're absolutely right, especially on the Republican side. It's far more interesting. There's a lot more going on there. We're going to look at that uh, gubernatorial race and the U.S. Senate race in Nevada. Um, Maine, there's nothing happening. North Dakota, there's even less happening. And South Dakota is pretty clear cut. Yeah. So we're going to take a close look at those Nevada races. Okay. Well, we were happy to be joined right here in the studio by Ray Valencia. Ray is a Sputnik News analyst and the producer of this show. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We'll take a short break and come back with our second hour. Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. Imagine a conversation where the President of the United States is asking his CIA director to convince the FBI director to end an investigation into criminal activity that will eventually implicate the President himself. The CIA director doesn't necessarily want to do it, so the President subtly threatens him with revealing things that the CIA did or may have done a decade earlier. Imagine further that the president tapes the entire conversation, but the Supreme Court later demands that the tapes be turned over to a congressional committee. And also imagine that two weeks later, the president resigns in disgrace. Well, that's what happened in the summer of 1974. President Richard Nixon practically begged his CIA director, Richard Helms, to help him with the FBI as the Watergate scandal closed in around him. Helms had a good hand of cards to play, but he eventually was charged with a misdemeanor count of lying to Congress. When he returned to CIA headquarters, and this story is legendary at the CIA, employees lined the halls and donated the money to pay his fine. Isn't that awful? Mm -hmm. Yes. But that conversation with the president in the Oval Office raised questions that have never been fully answered. They were the questions that Nixon was alluding to. What was the CIA's role in the Bay of Pigs debacle, for example? What operations did the CIA undertake, either legally or illegally, to kill Fidel Castro? And most important of all, did the CIA or elements of the CIA have any role in the assassination of President John F. Kennedy? We're going to talk about all this and more with Jefferson Morley. He's a journalist and author and the editor of the JFK Facts blog. He's the author of a bunch of fantastic books, and his latest one is called Scorpion's Dance, The President, The Spymaster, and Watergate. Jeff, welcome back. It's so good to speak with you again. Thanks for having me, John. It's good to be here. I'll tell you, man, as soon as I read the excerpt of your latest book in Politico over the weekend, I, I just couldn't stop. It was, I felt like I was in the room watching this meeting as it was taking place between Nixon and Richard Helms, and it really was an incredible account. Yeah. It really yeah. it really was. And what I loved was that you used the actual transcripts uh, from the tape. So so the reader is in the room, so to speak, watching this go down. 
Yeah, you really are. Can can you begin by telling us a little about a little bit about those final days of the Nixon administration? Certainly the president was obsessed in the summer of 74 with remaining in office, but even his base ended up walking away from him. Uh, when these tapes became uh, public, that was that was the end of it for Nixon. Yeah, what had happened was when the taping system was revealed in 1973, the Watergate special prosecutor immediately sought to identify tapes that were relevant to the investigation and to obtain them. Nixon fought that in court, saying that those the tapes were private. And eventually, in, the, in July 1974, the Supreme Court rules against him unanimously and says that nine tapes sought by the special prosecutor have to be released. And the June 23rd conversation was, came to be dubbed as the smoking gun tape because in that conversation that day, Nixon is, is heard instructing his chief of staff, Bob Haldeman, to get the CIA and director Richard Helms to stop the FBI investigation into the burglars. And it was very clear evidence that Nixon had obstructed justice. So it was kind of the the proverbial straw that broke the camel's back um, in terms of it proved that Nixon had been lying all along, that he had obstructed justice. And the last conservatives in Congress who had been supporting Nixon suddenly, you know, began to say they would not, they would vote for impeachment. And that's when uh, resignation became Nixon's only option. So very eventful. And it all flowed from this one conversation, this one enigmatic conversation between Nixon and Haldeman about the CIA and Richard Helms. To me, that was the most fascinating. I don't want to get ahead of myself, but Nixon repeatedly asked Haldeman to go to the CIA to get information that he wanted about the Bay of Pigs, about Kennedy, and bring it back. And the CIA kept holding him off. And I I made a a note in my, well, I I wrote myself a note in the notes here uh, saying that when I was at the CIA, they used to do that all the time. Presidents ask for all kinds of stuff. And what they do is delay and delay and delay and say, yes, it's being reviewed. Yes, we have people pouring through the files. And they just wait until you're not president anymore. And you just go away. From, from, From the start of Nixon's administration in 1969, he sent John Ehrlichman over to the Langley headquarters of the CIA, like every six months. And Ehrlichman told this story in his in his in his memoir. And um, he he would meet with Helms and they would talk and he never came back with anything. Yes. And it was exactly like you say, <laughs> delay, deflect, to give him something trivial, give him, you know, a little bit of that. And so after two years of this, two and a half years of this, Nixon finally summons Helms to the Oval Office and basically you know, gets very blunt about what he wants and why. And that's kind of a key piece of the book. And that's the story I tell in that Politico excerpt. And it's a story that I tell at greater length in the book, that confrontation between Nixon and Helms over what was going on at the Bay of Pigs and why did Nixon, you know, why did he want that? And what he says in in that conversation in October, 1971, is the the first thing he says to Helms when he calls him on the carpet and says, look, I really want this Bay of Pig stuff. And and Helms is sitting there and Nixon is going to explain why. And and when he begins to explain why, the first thing he says is the who shot John angle. Right. In the context of a demand for 
documents about the Bay of Pigs, that can only be a reference to one thing. He was talking about the assassination of President Kennedy. And Haldeman, in his, in his memoir, The Ends of Power, said exactly this. He, he said um, that he believed that when Nixon used the phrase, the Bay of Pigs or the whole Bay of Pigs thing, that that was Nixon's coded way of referring to the Kennedy assassination. And this conversation from October 8th, 1971, that I found, and it's not has been on the record, but I don't nobody has noticed that that phrase, uh, uh, the who shot John angle, that makes clear that Haldeman was right. When Nixon was interested in the Bay of Pigs thing, he had JFK's assassination on his mind. So that was in October 1971. Now you Fast forward eight months later to June 1972, the burglars who are working for the White House, former CIA, four of them are former CIA employees, right. when they're caught, Nixon wants to make sure that, that this does not get connected to him. And so he goes to Helms and or he calls, he calls in Haldeman. Nixon didn't want to do the confrontation in person. And he instructs Haldeman and he tells Haldeman, look, get Helms to go along, play tough with him. That's the way they play it. And remind him that if this thing goes through, it's going to blow up the whole Bay of Pigs thing. And so it was Nixon's way of reminding Helms of their conversation eight months earlier. You know, you guys are vulnerable on the JFK question. I know it. So let's both of us get this thing, put the lid on this thing. So it was... It was very Nixonian in that he was trying to be friendly to the CIA, but it had this implicit threat under it, you know, like, you guys have something to lose here about JFK. So, so you know, I'm going to help you cover it up, but you have to go along with what I'm saying. So Nixon is kind of threatening Helms or kind of blackmailing him by, by even raising the question yeah. of the who shot John Angle. And, and Helms blows up. When Haldeman delivers the message, Helms shouts, this doesn't have a damn thing to do with the Bay of Pigs. And you could see, you could hear in that just how threatened he felt and, and, and he knew. And not surprisingly, Helms goes along with Nixon, at least that day he does. That day he sends Deputy CIA Director Dick Walters over to see Pat Gray, the director of the FBI, and with the message, taper off the investigation. That was the message wow. that Helms and Walters sent to the FBI. Now, they didn't uh, – when, when the FBI came back and said, look, you know, we're actually going to go through with this and we want you – know, we want it in – if we're not going to do it, we want it in writing. <clears throat> Helms, a very canny guy, was never going to put something like that in writing. He never. would say it to his face, but he would never put it in writing. And so after a couple of weeks, Helms just holds up his hands, doesn't try and – obstruct the FBI from investigating the White House, but does obstruct the FBI from investigating the CIA. And it's at that point that the interests of Nixon and Helms diverge. And six How, Well, let me interrupt you on that one. How was he able to do that successfully? Because that was, I mean, that's, that's absolutely crucial in, in this question of who killed uh, John Kennedy. How was he able to, to get the FBI off the trail was it because there was chaos at the FBI after the death of of J Edgar Hoover how was that done um well when in that first meeting after the, on June 23rd after Haldeman delivers the threat about the whole bay of pigs thing then Walters goes to see Pat Gray 
And, um, you know, they said taper off the investigation. This might get into CIA business. And so, and so, uh, you know, Gray goes along with that. Um, then Helms comes back and says, uh, there's two people who you can't talk to because they're active CIA officers. And these were the two officers who had helped Howard Hunt um, uh, and Gordon Liddy um, break into the offices of Daniel Ellsberg, the man who leaked the Pentagon Papers to the New York Times. Ellsberg drove Nixon crazy. He was everything that, that Nixon hated. And so Nixon wanted to, you know, smear him, annihilate him, discredit him. And that's when he calls in and he's looking for somebody who's a kind of dirty trickster. And that's when he's casting around for names and they talk about a lot of people. And Haldeman comes to Nixon and says, well, um, we've got this guy, Howard Hunt, and Helms says right. he's ruthless, quiet, and careful. So Helms had actually recommended the burglar in chief to the White House a year before oh. the break in. So, oh, Helms recommended Hunt. Helms had recommended Hunt. To, Jeez, to I didn't know that. So, oh so, my God. Yeah. So what? So these ties between the burglars and the CIA were quite strong and real and and current. Um, and Helms was very adept at hiding that while the FBI investigation of the White House continued. So. So, you know, Helms was playing this this double game of, 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 of seeming to support the president. And, you know, Helms had been very supportive of Nixon throughout his first term. They, yes. They shared the hardline anti-communism. They wanted to spy on the anti-war movement at home. You know, politically, they were very in tune. Culturally, they were very different men. But politically, they were very in tune. And wasn't it – didn't Johnson recommend to Nixon – when Nixon was elected president, that he keep um, that he keep uh, Helms on. Yeah, Helms had impressed Johnson, um, and uh, Johnson liked him a lot, um, and so uh, and said that he felt that he he didn't inject politics into the way he ran the CIA. This is according to Johnson, and so in December 1968, after Nixon has won re-election, Johnson goes to Nixon and and, and says. I'd keep him on, you know, uh, you don't want to politicize the CIA. And Nixon agrees with that and, and, and decides to keep Helms on. But it is funny, you know, they're, they're very different men. You know, uh, Nixon is this, comes from this poor background on the West Coast. He's insecure. He's anxious. He's ambitious. And Helms is this very smooth East Coast um, white shoe guy from the main line in Philadelphia. Um, but they do manage to get along. Helms is very canny about ha handling Nixon and flattering him. And Nixon mutters all the time about firing Helms. But at the end of the day, Helms, you know, served him pretty loyally, at least until the Watergate break in. That's when their ways begin to part. Do you do you think that well let me back up the, the impression that I got in the um in the excerpt from Politico was that if there was some sort of involvement of the CIA in the Kennedy assassination it was likely through Howard Hunt that Hunt hated Kennedy because Kennedy didn't provide air cover at the Bay of Pigs do you think there's there's anything to these rumors that Hunt had something to do with it I don't think that there's any solid evidence linking Hunt to the assassination. Hunt did make some kind of murky comments to his son late in life about a possible right. 
CIA conspiracy. But, you know, Hunt, he was kind of talking out of both sides of his mouth. He didn't provide a lot of detail. I've read, I've, I've read and listened to that interview, and I don't think there's too much to it. I mean, in terms of solid evidence linking Hunt himself to the assassination. I think it's very interesting that Hunt, a CIA loyalist, would say such a thing. It's kind of an admission against interest, for one thing. But And then, especially in context, you know, Hunt did not think that the assassination of President Kennedy was any, any tragedy or anything like that. He thought it was poetic justice. And in fact, what Hunt wrote in his books about the Kennedy assassination is almost as damning as what's in that interview. So, wow. So, 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 yeah. And, you know, there was widespread, deep hostility to JFK because of the Bay of Pigs and also because of his Cuba policy during the missile crisis and after. And so, you know, when Nixon talks about the Bay of Pigs and raises the who shot John Angle, you know, clearly one thing that he thought was that Kennedy's enemies in the CIA might have been the ones who orchestrated the ambush in Dallas. And so, you know, did Nixon have solid information linking the CIA to that? I don't think so. I think he had a politician's intuition of how things right. worked. You know, right. don't forget, don't forget, a month after the Kennedy assassination, President Harry Truman calls for the abolition of the clandestine service. That's the man, right. The man who signed the CIA into existence wanted to sign it out of existence after the yep. Kennedy assassination. And the only explanation for that view of Truman's is that he thought that the assassination emanated from or might have emanated from the ranks of the CIA. That's right. And he did that quite publicly yeah, in, a, in, in an op-ed. Washington Post. Yeah. Yes, he sure did. We're speaking with Jefferson Morley, the author of the upcoming book, Scorpion's Dance, The President, the Spymaster, and Watergate. Um, Jeff, I want to ask you one other question. You've paid closer attention to the Kennedy documents than anybody I know. And there are still documents that remain unreleased. Uh, Donald Trump said he was going to release the final tranche. He ended up not doing so because someone in the intelligence community asked that they not be released. Yeah. And so what ended up being released, I guess it's two and a half years ago now, uh, amounted to nothing. You know, I I went through those documents uh, for Skyhorse, um, yeah. the, the publishing house, and there was just nothing to them. Uh, you know, some references yeah. to Mexico City and just nothing that seemed important to me. Uh, do you think that there is still something out there that's important? Do you think maybe there's a smoking gun out there that we haven't seen yet? You know, smoking gun, that that's a that's a, a kind of a Hollywood concept of of, yeah. of, 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 of of how things work. I mean, a smoking gun yeah. is what what do we mean by a smoking gun? Incontrovertible proof of something. Yeah. Right? And there's you know, there's not. Yeah, I think the Kennedy assassination is so contested that it's 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 very difficult to imagine one piece of evidence, um, especially because in these documents, as you saw, you know, it's not like the whole document is redacted. It might be it might be missing a word or a paragraph. Now that said, there is a lot of material that is still redacted related to the Kennedy assassination. There are eleven thousand two hundred and seventy five CIA documents, JFK documents generated by the CIA that still contain redactions in 2022. And uh, there's another deadline for release in December of this year. 
you know, we'll see how much the CIA is going to release. I do think that there's significant information in there. I, but you have to understand if there is something incriminating in there, it will be the last thing the CIA yeah. releases. So we have to get to the the only way to answer the question of is there a smoking gun in there is to take all of the redactions off, which is what's required by the law, by the JFK Assassination Records Act. So, you know, we don't know. We don't know. I don't think there's a smoking gun in there. I do think that there's significant information in there. Right. And uh, but I also think the CIA has the ability to resist declassification and full disclosure, and I don't think we're likely to get at all of those documents later. Uh, let me let me ask you about that too. I, I I told you I had one more question. I guess I have two. You know, we we do have these these mandatory declassification laws in this country that after whatever it is, thirty years or thirty five years, uh, documents are supposed to begin the declassification review process. Right. It's highly unusual to have documents that are classified that remain classified uh, for for longer than that period of time. And in order to remain legally classified, they have to have they have to contain information on sources. Uh, or methods or um, liaison relationships, all of which must be still ongoing. How is it even possible that after 60 years, there's information in these documents that that is still properly classified? It's hard to believe. I mean, one of the one of the documents that's still that's still classified is um, a memo that Arthur Schlesinger writes to President Kennedy. Arthur Schlesinger is the historian who worked in the White yes. in the Kennedy White House. And three months after the two months after the Bay of Pigs, Schlesinger writes Kennedy a memo about the Bay of Pigs. And the title of the memo is Reorganization of the CIA. And Schlesinger's point was that the CIA had undertaken or had usurped the policymaking function of the president in order to pursue its own policies. And Schlesinger felt that the Bay of Pigs was an example of that. And so so that memo is now 61 years old. There's a page and a half of that memo that is entirely classified. Now, to me, that's mind-boggling, right? That's a 60-year-old document. It's about the reorganization of the CIA, which is about the Bay of Pigs, right? The issue that Nixon thought and Helms knew was at the heart of the JFK controversy. We have a very strong law that says all such documents must be made public. And yet look at that. A page and a half of this document is still off limits to the American people. So that's a testimony to the power of the CIA and how much they fear full disclosure around the JFK issue. They're still worried about something that is 60 years old. Wow. Yeah. Wow, just amazing. Jefferson Morley, thank you so much for joining us. Jeff Morley is a journalist, author, and the editor of the JFK Facts blog. His latest book is Scorpion's Dance, The President, The Spymaster, and Watergate. When's the book uh, actually coming out? When can we finally buy it? It came out yesterday. It was the official oh, update. Oh, fantastic. So if you order hey, it, congratulations. You, will, you will get it now. Um, there's a good audio book. If audio books are your thing, um, also Excellent. available on the Macmillan uh, website and there's a website. and there's an ebook too. So depending on how you awesome. like your books, it is available now. Well, I hope it's a smash success. I I couldn't tear myself away from the excerpt. Congratulations. Thank you, John. It's good talking again. Good to talk to you. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We'll take a short break and come right back.
Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with John Kiriakou, and we're taking a minute to check in on the gathering of some of the Americas. (laughs) In L.A. that's underway right now. And, you know, we laugh about it. But, you know, Secretary of State Antony Blinken is there. Uh, Joe Biden is going to attend events. Kamala Harris is there. Kamala Harris uh, attending an event uh, in support of indigenous women of Guatemala. uh, And it has been pointed out the very same uh, place that she went down to to say, do not come. Don't come to the United United States. States, Do not come. So it's kind of. I mean, I don't know if it's mixed messages there, but surely <laughs> normal people would feel a, a ruffle of embarrassment at that. I would. Uh, we are joined now with, uh, by Jamal Thomas, co-host of Fault Lines on this very channel, to talk about how the summit has opened and, and what's gone down there so far. Jamal, thanks for joining us. No, not an issue at all. Glad to be here. Uh, the big story, of course, uh, at the outset of this summit is these missing pieces. And so I wonder, just to set the stage, how is the absence of the leadership from Cuba, Nicaragua, Venezuela, and Mexico coloring things there? It is very weird and surreal when you think about it. Because the mm-hmm. language that the people are basically using is about inclusion. Like, I just listened to Blink and give a statement. And I also listened to uh, the gentleman's name. Is He said it the OAS. Um, mm-hmm. And the statement is basically inclusion. Luis Almagro, Secretary General of OAS. And so it's inclusion. It's we're going to work together. We're going to create democracy devices, which piqued my interest um, because I know the way democracy is often used as a buzzword. Mm-hmm. And basically saying we're trying to get regional cooperation. But like you said, um, Cuba, Nicaragua, um, uh, what's the other one? Cuba, Nicaragua, Venezuela. Um, and because those countries weren't invited, you get Mexico, you get Honduras, um, you get Bolivia. Basically saying, well, we're not coming either. So yeah. It's, you know, or you get other countries that will send a lesser delegate, meaning there may be somebody who basically goes as a lesser form as opposed to the president showing up at the places. It's surreal in a weird way. I mean, all things being equal, you know, listening to Obrador, who basically was giving this kind of blistering rebuke of the U.S. doing this, it's like this is not mm-hmm. a summit of America. This is a summit of American friends. Yes. Those things, right? And so it's like yeah. you want to bridge the gap. You want to be able to have this kind of economic cooperation. And by the way, even if you don't necessarily agree with the way a country is, so what? You're one country of many countries that are coming to have an event for cooperation and everything else. The notion that one country of many where one country is not necessarily supposed to be more superior or less. In that case, all of these guys are supposed to be equals, at least philosophically, right? Mm-hmm. One country decides we don't want the other country to come. How does one country do that? How? So it's like it's a summit. Let it be a summit. Yeah. And even if you disagree with something that's going on in the political process of another country, so what? And of course, you know, as I mentioned earlier in the show, uh, the the reason given is that somehow those countries are not democratic. And yet you have the inclusion of Ariel Henry of Haiti, who is definitely, you know, uh, governing outside of democratic norms, as was pointed out earlier. The other thing that I think is really interesting, Jamal, is, I mean, what I have seen coming out of the summit so far is uh, an administration that is still going full throttle on disinformation, right? So the Biden administration's uh, disinformation board, the domestic version, 
implodes, <laughs> implodes pretty catastrophically a, a couple weeks back. Uh, but on the international front, there's still full steam ahead. And so we have already had the launch of the Center for Media Integrity of the Americas. We have a new digital communication network of the Americas, which is another body that is intended to connect the right people to proliferate the right information. And I wonder if you have, you know, noted some of these big media announcements and, and seen what the response has been to them. All right. So Blinken just announced that. Like when he gave his speech, mm -hmm. he, like I said, he comes in, he's late. Um, so there's that. I'm not going to complain about that. But, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but he gets there late. Dead Price is there, who I greatly dislike. I so dislike Dead Price. Whatever. Yeah. So these guys get up there and Blinken gives a statement. He gives a speech. And he basically says there are five points of reasons that we're here. He said the objective for greater health, pandemic resistance, which... I mean, it's possible, right? Cuba was basically mm -hmm. literally sending doctors around the world to treat issues of COVID. And yet they're going to yeah. bring this is one of the main issues. It's like, dude, if that was true, why is balls and arrow here? And why is it not? Mm -hmm. There's that. The other one was preparing the future for health emergencies across the region. Again, that is rich. We lost a million people from COVID. Um, mm -hmm. Established the first regional agenda for digital transformation. And that's what you're talking about. Basically, mm -hmm. we're going to get technology and information and that type of stuff, and this is going to be a regional effort where we're going to come across, you know, working together. But again, it's like, dude, Mexico is not there. Bolivia is not there. Cuba, yeah. but just like, like these are countries. These are not, um, you know, fickle things. These things have yeah. weight, especially, you know, Mexico is the one trade partner. Accelerate regional transition on energy. Basically, coming up with some kind of regional thing of transition into um, clean coal or, any, or clean energy, which is, again, mm -hmm. amazing since Biden just put out the thing yesterday basically saying the U.S. has an energy deficit. Look how ridiculous this is, right? We chose not to use Russian energy or to downplay it. Okay, fair enough. We chose to have an economic war, which spiked the um, cost of energy. Okay, fair enough. Now the U.S. Yeah. is like, we're, we're running on energy. And the last one was double down or advance democracies, basically threats to democracy. That was the one where I was like, whoa, because they're talking about creating some kind of regional device that basically ensures, protects um, uh, democratic governments and institutions. And I thought, okay, what does that mm -hmm. mean in practice? What does that mean in practice? Yeah. Who defines it? Exactly. Who defines what a democracy is? And if it's a situation yeah. where we have now, why is it the business of other countries what is taking place in regards to a country? Meaning, mm -hmm. Why is it our purview to care how a government is oriented and to take the position that we're going to somehow change or curtail. I mean, for God's sake, we helped or put in um, Orlando, what is it, Hernandez, the narco um, government that was basically in Honduras. That narco mm -hmm. government, if you remember, he was like, we're going to get drugs into the nose of every gringo. Cool. Yeah. To get <laughs> yes. him deported or ex um, um, deported to the United States for prosecution. He got yeah. rid of the, quote, dirtbag lefty who he didn't particularly like, who wasn't having a narco government. Like when they say stuff like this, I think to myself, okay, well, is that their way of talking about democracy? Getting rid of yeah. like overthrowing the government and putting that guy in? Because that doesn't seem like democracy to me. That sounds like something else. Like that stuff, like it's it's a weirdness associated with this is our projected thing that's all flowers and rainbows. And then you get into what does this look like in practice? And it's not flowers and rainbows. Let me ask you, Jamal, where in the events you've attended, I mean, obviously, you know, I think this is absolutely correct, right? And I think that it is it is a joke that you you'd have so many countries missing, supposedly for their uh, f flawed, the flawed nature of their governments and their lack of democracy. There's obvious hypocrisy in, in who is invited. I guess I'm wondering if you are seeing much resistance 
to the story that is being spun there, right? I mean, I did see Antony Blinken get challenged by, as I mentioned earlier, by Eugene Perrier, by Abby Martin. Those are names that were probably familiar to everybody who's listening to this show. But is it... Is anybody else asking some of these questions? Is there any heat uh, anywhere in the summit that you can see other than from the usual quarters? Not that I've seen. I mean, not mm-hmm. necessarily that I've I mean, like, keep in mind, the media here is more establishment media. So they're like CNN, Telemundo, um, ABC News. ABC was late. Yeah. Again, no, I'm just pointing that out. Um, but it's like they are in a context. From their standpoint, the government's with us. So that's what we could run with. There's no friction or heat within the context of that. And from the standpoint of communications from other people from other countries, well, oftentimes they're in Spanish. Necessarily exactly tell what's going on with it. Ultimately, it seems like the protest is coming from external. You have the People's Summit that's apparently protesting almost as a counter summit. Yeah. And so there were people outside yesterday and had the opportunity to talk to um, people protesting Biden on immigration. And their point was Republicans basically use this as a political tool. Democrats use it as a political tool, holding it over our heads, um, and neither one of them are doing anything on it. And his thing – and you know, he had a group with him, maybe of 20, 30 people, and they were very loud, um, chanting and everything else, had signs and whatnot. And he was very clear. Like basically he wanted – there's something – in our laws dealing with people staying, meaning if you're here for a period of time to allow those people to basically stay. It's like, that's a law that's already on the books that needs to be updated. There's 7 million people that are benefit. And the point I made to him, I was like, well, are you concerned that in the same way that when Biden first got into office, Biden was making that statement about, okay, we're taking kids, but we're not going to take the adults, in which case people just start sending their kids to the border. Meaning, are you concerned that if you create a law um, where you allow people to basically stay after being in the country for a while, that you're going to incentivize people to come into the country. The most natural thing in the world, right? And so he was like, he, he demurred on that point. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, no, the COVID changed things. It's not really the same thing. It's like, man, but to be fair to him, I accept this point, right? Whether I agree or disagree with the point, it's something where he's saying, this is a policy position that we have. This something needs to be done. And look, he's not wrong. The immigration system is astonishingly bad. We've had people on oh, yeah. and I've been shocked at what we do for immigration. Yeah, it's it's outrageous. Jamal Thomas, thank you so much for joining us. We will be checking in with you uh, over the rest of the week to see what happens as as uh, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris get more into the mix there. Uh, that was Jamal Thomas, co-host of Fault Lines on this very station. If you want to hear more from Fault Lines, you can listen to them in the morning from 7 to 10. Thanks so much, Jamal. Enjoy the rest of the summit. All right, we're going to I think we're going to head straight through because I have so sure. many there, questions. There's so much to talk about. There's way too much to talk about uh in this next segment. So we'll just get through uh what we can. Uh, I, uh there's the the great Bitcoin legislation that we've all been waiting for. There's uh, some very self-indulgent questions I'm going to ask about NFTs. Uh, we've got self-driving cars. We've got digital displays. There's all kinds of stuff coming up here. Joining us for it is Chris Garatha, editor of techforthepeople.org. Thank you, Chris. Oh, great to be back with you. Thanks. Um, let's just listen, start with my favorite topic, NFTs, which are getting hacked left and right. Uh, the Bored Ape Yacht Club Discord server was hacked for what I believe is the third time. Uh, and it, what was stolen is described as 200 ethers worth or $360,000 worth of NFTs. I can't find anywhere how many NFTs were stolen, uh, but maybe maybe you have been able to find that information. Uh, also, actor Seth Green just a couple of days ago said he'd been robbed of some NFTs that he was supposedly building a new TV series around. What? Yeah. And so 
you know, I hey, I like Seth Green I just fine yeah. as much as the next guy. Yeah, I do too. But if this hack is mean we're spared a, a TV series based on NFTs, I can't say that I am sorry yeah. about that outcome. Yeah. Um, so, first of all, sort of not related to the story, Chris, but why why does all the reporting on this hack? go through this weird chain of imaginary values where it's always 200 ethers worth of NFTs, which is $360,000. I mean, I'm going to say neither of those things are actually worth $360,000. But what is the reason for that? Do you have any idea? Oh, I mean, it just completely reflects the position of people who buy NFTs that cryptocurrencies and digital tokens are actually worth something, which I Mm -hmm. certainly disagree with. You know, I yeah, I, I don't feel bad for folks who lost their NFTs. I mean, look, mm-hmm. they they are gambling in effectively in a market. You know, what happened was the Discord account of one of the administrators was hacked. And then from there, the person who took it over put out a, a message saying, we're going to have a giveaway, click here. And then mm. it was a phishing site. They collected yeah. credentials and took and that's how they took it over. So I think the discord thing the news is paying a lot of attention to that because it's a relatively, you know, well-known chat service, but it's actually not, you know, the, it's just somebody's account wasn't secure. Uh, and then all of the other accounts that were taken over also very much like not secure. But yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, 200, you know, ETH, uh, $300,000. I mean, this is money that is has these are some things that have no value effectively. I mean, yeah. it's an it's a link to an image of in this case apes, right? It's not even you don't even own the actual image itself. You own a link to a thing that says you own the image. Anyone yeah. else can claim that they own it and if they don't care about that little link that you bought, then they can just say I own this. They can print it out, <laughs> they can copy and paste it, they can do whatever um, it is they want with it. Let me ask you a conspiratorial question, and I fully expect the answer to be no, but I still want to ask it because I just think this is so weird to me. We have had so many. There have been a lot of hacks lately, right? Apes are being lost right and left. People are copying. People are complaining about them. I am starting to wonder, especially if these are all being made by people who are supposed to be so tech and security savvy and sort of the the uniqueness of the NFT is the the whole value of it. Um, is it crazy to start to wonder if these hacks are maybe a way to offload some of this value, right? Because other than all the hacking news, the news about NFTs lately that I have seen is of huge losses in value. And so is it possible, even theoretically, is it possible uh, that what we'll end up seeing is these hacks? It's just a convenient way to explain this loss of value in another way. I mean, in theory, sure. It could be inside actors. It could be the equivalent almost of inside trading, really, uh, you know, with, mm. in the NFT space. I don't want to say for sure that it is. I think that's a that would be a big, uh, big judgment to levy against, you know, the people involved here. I think also, though, yeah. NFTs are such a big market and people still are spending ridiculous amounts of money, even if it's, you know, fake cryptocurrency on them, that yeah. people do want to take them. I mean, you look at uh, the attacks that ransomware computers, you know, for Bitcoin and all of that, it, there's there's money in this for people. And so, you know, whether yeah. it's real, you know, currency or, you know, cryptocurrency. So they're, you know, they're really looking at, you know, it's a target just like really any other market could be. And so you would say NFTs are not yet dead. Not yet, but I can't wait.
Yeah. <laughs> what about Discord? Uh, Discord's getting yeah. a lot of the blame for this. Is What's up with Discord? And should anyone who's not buying and selling NFTs care about how secure this server is? I, you know, they just they didn't have the right. And but they I mean, the, the administrators, the people who ran this server didn't have the right settings on the on the server. They didn't mm-hmm. require, you know, that two factor authentication that makes you, you know, put in a special code after your password, something that, you know, you got sent in a text message or from an app. They didn't do mm-hmm. anything like that uh, on that. So I think this isn't Discord's fault necessarily. Um, you know, I think, you know, Discord certainly has other issues, but completely, you know, completely unrelated to to this mm-hmm. hack. It's sort of that. The lack of security kind of takes me into the next topic I wanted to talk about, which is this uh, highly anticipated piece of legislation. uh, This is uh, Politico calls it the most highly anticipated legislation in the history of cryptocurrency. Like, okay, please loosen, loosen your collar. Um, But I I want to jump ahead a little bit because this article about this piece of legislation, which we'll get into in a minute, notes that you have states that are already vying to be hubs for what is called a blockchain-based economy. It notes uh, New York City trying to set itself up to do something. It's Wyoming that's trying to set itself up for another. And this is because uh, Kristen Gillibrand is involved in this legislation and Cynthia Loomis. But, you know, one, if a blockchain-based economy is even a little bit as volatile as the NFT market or as crypto prices, it sounds like total chaos. But also, I would not necessarily have confidence that the participants in this blockchain economy, right? If you're talking about a state economy, you're talking about a lot of people's jobs. And we definitely don't seem to really have a handle on the security necessary uh, for whatever this economy would be, Chris. Well, let's just first of all take a look at Cynthia Lummis. Um, you know, mm-hmm. Cynthia Lummis, senator from Wisconsin. Uh, her top contributors between 2017 and 2022 include Multicoin Capital, which on their mm-hmm. own website says they are a thesis-driven investment firm that invests in cryptocurrencies, tokens, and blockchain companies reshaping trillion-dollar markets. Look, I don't know what a thesis-driven investment company is, but that's, no. But there they are. And next, you have Reinventing a New Direction, also known as Rand Pack, which is Rand Pack. I like sideways. Yeah. Like, sorry. <laughs> uh, and you have a company called Payword Inc. Payword uh, provides a digital currency exchange and trading platform. So no surprise to me in any way that Cynthia Lummis is very interested in cryptocurrency, given that she's getting all of these donations from people who are investing, companies investing in cryptocurrency. Look, this bill is very clearly going to have the minimal effort uh, into any kind of regulation of the agency uh, of cryptocurrency itself. There is Mm going to be very little regulation. It is, in fact, still very unclear what that regulation is or could look like under the bill. What we Mm -hmm. we do need to be regulating the cryptocurrency market, just like securities, just like stocks, all of those things Mm -hmm. absolutely need to be uh, regulated and, you know, certainly more so than they are now. I'm not saying that that regulation mirroring what we have now would be, you know, the best solution. But so I think that's where Kirsten Gillibrand is coming from, more on the liberal side, uh, Mm -hmm. looking at, you know, potentially 
first of all, yes, opening up New York to this kind of investment, but also pretending that there's going to be some sort of responsibility built into this law. But crypto, I mean, they have just these massive, massive amounts of money to to spend because it's a hot thing. Um, the banks, mm-hmm. the investment companies, uh, you know, venture capitalists have really gotten on board with funding cryptocurrency. And now, you know, just as mm-hmm. we said with multi-coin capital, there are now even uh, investment companies who are investing only in cryptocurrency. And of course, these companies expect massive amounts of return on investment, just like any uh, venture capitalist or other investment company. I mean, I guess in a way, Chris, it is it is edifying here. I mean, it's not often that we get to watch the birth of an entirely new industry and then watch the process by which it is regulated. And so this does offer an example to go, oh, OK, here. So we have this new thing that starts. We have a bunch of people get rich on it. And then they start, as you say, uh, making donations to and heavily lobbying the very people who end up crafting the regulation of it. Like there seems something is wrong in that pattern. But that pattern is is very, very familiar. Yeah, that pattern is super, super familiar. I do want to draw people's attention to a really great open letter um, that you can find at concerned.tech on the web. It's a mm-hmm. letter in support of responsible fintech policy, so financial technology policy. And it's initiated by 1,500 computer scientists, software engineers, and technologists, and some very big names, including uh Molly White, Jamie Zawinski, Tim Bray, Grady Booch, and others who really have framed the way that the internet and just being online, frankly, works today. And they have put this, uh, you know, they've put this letter out there and it's been sent to uh, Nancy Pelosi, Kevin McCarthy, John Boozman, uh, Ron Wyden, and a number of others um, is particularly focusing on the House Financial Services Committee to say that we need actual real skepticism and regulation of cryptocurrency, including other uses or and other uses of blockchain technologies, that we can't just mm-hmm. allow industry to define what regulation could or should be. I mean, we all know that that has never worked in the past. A reg- uh, industry for profit can never properly define the regulations that the government is going to have over it because that would any real kind of regulation for safety for in uh you know security would actually just hit their profit their bottom line so i definitely recommend mm-hmm. that people take a look at this um, you know, take a look at this uh, letter, online letter. If you're in the industry, consider signing on to it. Mm-hmm. The other thing is that, I mean, we still haven't come to a firm agreement as to what cryptocurrencies actually are in terms of regulating them. And as I understand it, one of the big deals in this bill is that it would not define cryptocurrencies as securities, uh, which would have put them within the purview of the SEC, but instead as commodities. And so then they'd be under the much smaller, uh, much, uh, you know, smaller budgeted Commodity Futures Trading Commission. is, is that significant, Chris? Is, is this a big deal? I think it will be a big deal. I think, you know, that the right place for this regulation probably is uh, the SEC, but with way more teeth than it has now. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, we, we don't hear enough about them investigating or going into, uh, you know, cryptocurrency. Um, and you can, and it kind of goes back to the conversation, you know, we were having earlier with the idea that you you posited you know, what if there is insider trading or other manipulation in these industries? And I think it's mm-hmm. going to take a, a massive 
scam, uh, you know, bigger than Bitcoin itself, frankly. Right. Um, but it's going to take some sort of massive, you know, disenfranchisement of those who are invested here. And I'm, I'm thinking, you know, Bernie Madoff style and Ron's, you know, or WorldCom style uh, disaster for the government to really, you know, do any kind of serious uh, regulation. And I hope that I'm mm -hmm. wrong, right? I, I hope that I'm wrong because ultimately, as cryptocurrencies get more and more, uh, you know, integrated into the economy, we're going to see regular people's investment portfolios having them. Oh yeah, and you know, when we say like, I don't, I don't also mind seeing uh, very rich people lose money on NFTs. I do not, I, I do not relish the idea of of people who can't afford it losing these things or being encouraged to sort of gamble in this way and then losing their shirts. And if there is a disaster on the scale of the one you described, certainly it would be sort of regular people and their bank accounts pulled into this vortex. Uh, Chris, we don't have too much time left in the show. And so I want to come back to uh, some ideas about technology, privacy and security, especially uh, as they relate to a couple stories about self-driving cars that I've seen recently. Some are about the use of uh, self-driving cars by police to do surveillance, which is pretty creepy, um, but also uh, about just what the insides of our cars look like and the effect that's having on us. Uh, I saw this observation by Paris Marks, who's a host of the Tech Won't Save Us podcast. Uh, and it's a picture of the extremely busy electric dashboard of a car. It's displaying a Spotify account. It's got statistics about your car's overall performance. It's got information about what's happening in your home garage. It's got a whole smartphone app configuration in front of your eyes. And then there is the stuff that you actually might need to look at from time to time, like your speedometer and your gas meter. Oh, and then above you is the windshield that maybe you should be looking out of. Um, and so Paris Mark says, this sucks. This is obviously far too distracting. And it's shameful that regulators haven't stepped in. And I wanted to get your thoughts on that. Like, actually, you know, is there a limit to how much information should be at your fingertips while you're supposed to be driving? Yeah, super interesting uh, tweet and picture here from Paris Marks, because looking at this, this is actually a screenshot from Apple's Worldwide Developer Conference video. Um, that's a conference mm -hmm. that is happening now, and the keynote presentation was on Monday, and that's actually uh, where this image comes from. So this is mm -hmm. in development uh, in con between Apple and in conjunction with a number of car companies using Apple's CarPlay technology. You can, if you look closely at the tweet, it looks like, yeah, that's the iPhone weather information and the mm -hmm. icons there. Um, it's entirely too much. When you're driving, you mm -hmm. should be focused on the road. You should not mm -hmm. be looking at the weather, uh, you know, your text messages, things like that. I think this is, you know, this is one of those situations where no one stopped and said, should we? They said, can we? Yeah. How can yeah. we? But they never stopped and said, should we? Uh, and they're really, we, we really need studies and we need experts and, and safety there because there is a massive, massive increase happening uh, in car accidents. Um, and, you know, I'm not going to speculate exactly as to why, but I can only imagine that the massive, you know, increases in technology in our cars right down to TV screens um, are, mm -hmm. you know, are, could be partially responsible for that. I mean, distracted driving it has always been a danger, whether it's fiddling with the radio. You know, I mean, that's mm -hmm. when I learned how to 
you know, when I learned how to drive, it was don't fiddle with the radio while you're driving. Now it's probably, you know, don't send text don't messages, text. right? Yeah. Don't swipe yeah. through your Spotify playlists or read the news while you're driving. So no, I, yeah. I, I think that uh, Paris Marx is totally right here. And this really needs, you know, investigation. Uh, it's extremely concerning that these companies mm -hmm. are putting these things up right in front of you. Um, it's flashing. It's fancy. You're going to completely lose attention. Why do you need the map of where you are on your dashboard? Yeah. Yeah. Why do you need to know what's happening in your garage while you're driving? I mean, it just seems like that's extraneous. Yeah, it's a, it's a horrifying vision. Uh, the last thing I want to get to is just this report. I mean, I guess we should have seen this coming, but I do not feel like we've talked about this, Chris. It's a report uh, about police using self-driving cars for surveillance. This comes from a story in The Register and says this is already underway in San Francisco. According to a San Francisco Police Department training document obtained by Motherboard, autonomous vehicles are recording their surroundings continuously and have the potential to help with investigative leads. I don't feel like I signed up to just be recorded, randomly surveilled by circulating police vehicles that aren't even manned. And, and I wonder what you think. You know, we have talked a lot about the sort of intrusive nature of some of this technology when it comes to facial recognition. Um, I, I don't know. I, I feel like there, I can't think of anything that should specifically outlaw the use of these cars, but it also creeps me out and I feel like there's something wrong with it. I mean, look, Tes uh, Tesla can't even get their self-driving cars to not catch fire and lock people in them. So, you know, right. the, <laughs> the issues of these self-driving cars, you know, with cameras just basically being robot cops, uh, you know, is just way out of line. I mean, look, we mm -hmm. I didn't sign up for this either. No one signed up for this. But companies like Waymo and others think that this is a good idea because they can sell it to police departments. They can pretend that police are, you know, under attack, even though the, you know, the defund the police movement has, you know, unfortunately not made as many gains as I think many of us hoped it would or, or it, mm -hmm. you know, as it should have. But police, of course, are using that to say, give us more money because we're under attack by these, you know, these crazy activists. Um, right. I, right. You know, we are always under surveillance when we're outside. We shouldn't have to be right. It's one thing mm -hmm. to just say, OK, you know, I'm a photographer and I'm just taking photos of a, of a nice park that you, Michelle, I just happen to be walking through. It's another sure. to be captured on a self-driving car or a dozen security cameras, uh, you know, on one block. It just it makes me think back, you know, here in Connecticut a couple of years ago. There was a woman, Jennifer Dulos, who went missing, and the police here used videos. Yeah, of course, it was a big story. But the, the police used uh, images and videos from uh, school buses, gas stations, highway cams to basically follow a car involved in the investigation for 40-something miles from uh, New Canaan to Farmington, which is across, effectively across the state. So it's already being done. Adding the, the ability for a self-driving car that either can be told where to go or decide on its own autonomously where to go based on, you know, some algorithm that the police come up with, which, of course, will be targeting the poorest neighborhoods and the you know mm -hmm. neighborhoods where primarily people of color live. Uh, that just adds an extra whole extra layer to the creepiness of this but, kind of surveillance technology. I mean, it gives you listen, I, this is jumping probably a decade ahead. But honestly, it gives the police the chance to say, oh, no, we can't I can't go to that neighborhood. I'm scared for my life. Let's just send in a self-driving car and then we can also follow 
follow up with a drone to go and target the miscreant's house, all based on remote technology. Which, you know, that's what we're doing overseas. Eventually, you think maybe it maybe it does come home. Well, certainly. And uh, a company called Axon uh, had some plans until this past week when its entire ethics advisory board resigned. Their plans were to sell drones that had tasers to school. No! To schools, <laughs> as a response to school shootings. So I think wow. you're not that far off here uh, with the, you know, this is a weaponized drone that they could have, uh, that that could have been done. Their, their ethics yeah. board actually just quit over this plan, and now Axon has backed off of it, uh, which is a, which is good. Good, yeah. But like, yeah, not all ethics board are, are going to be that ethical. Uh, Chris, I wish we had more time. There's always uh, more NFT bashing I can do, but we're finished for today. That was Chris Garatha, editor of Tech for the People. Chris, thanks so much for joining us yet again. Great. Thanks for having me. We've got a couple of last stories that we should make you aware of if you haven't seen the headlines already before we get out of here. And one is that a man was arrested. Uh, and now I'm not sure, John, I don't know if you're more caught up on the story than I am. It was first like in front of Brett Kavanaugh's house, but now it is maybe a few streets a, over. A few streets over, yes, but what I've read. Seems like cops stopped him. He had a gun and he said, yes, I, I intend to kill Brett Kavanaugh. Yeah, he was in the neighborhood looking for Kavanaugh's house so he could kill him. Yeah. Over Roe v. Wade. So, I mean, on one hand, quite, you know, very scary that someone has uh, gone to this man's house who's found where he lives, has a weapon and has the intention to kill him. On the other hand, usually, usually if you're of sound mind, you yeah. don't immediately confess to police. Right. I would right. I would think. Um, although, of course, God knows you don't have to be of sound mind to do really terrible things. So, yeah, I mean, that's a terror. I, you know. I hate Brett, Ka Brett Kavanaugh, but I don't want someone to break into his house and kill him. Right. Uh, it's it's an upsetting story. Also, I uh, didn't get to oil trading at $120 a barrel. Yeah, $120 a barrel. Pretty neat. <laughs> I, I mean, what? what uh, okay, yeah, cool. Great. I love it. But we're going to help. Uh, we're going to help South America transition to clean energy. Right. In a, in a, really seriously. Yeah, we really mean when, it. When Venezuela, I just saw this yesterday. I think it was in the New York Times. Venezuela has 1,570 years worth of oil left. Yeah. When Venezuela runs out, then we will really get serious. <laughs> oh, the other story I wanted to make sure we don't miss mentioning is uh, gymnasts. A bunch of American yeah. gymnasts are suing the FBI for a billion dollars over mishandling of the case of Larry Nassar, who was the team doctor uh, who was uh, convicted yes. on uh, many counts of yeah. child sex Sentenced abuse. Sentenced to life, yeah. life in prison. Yeah. Um, and good for them. I mean, it does. We had hearings about that just last year. Right, John? And it does yes. seem as though they did uh, just egregiously botch that case and let uh, quite a lot of time go by between taking any of these uh, abuse allegations seriously so i wish them the best of luck in their suit yeah i do too and i'll say real quickly i know we're out of time but the the new york post is all wrong about this already there's they're calling it a search for a payday uh just get Off. out of here what what a bunch of garbage they just they absolutely deserve that the fbi from what i can see just botched that from top yes, to they bottom did. absolutely what yes, a shame they did. all right we're gonna get out of here i have a really fun story from the new york post tomorrow john i cannot wait excellent you'll have to wait though thanks to our engineers thanks to our producers here and of course all our guests and on behalf of john kiriaku and myself michelle witty thanks for listening we'll see you tomorrow <laughs>